We are in a Substack era. The algorithm of Instagram is going bust, and many of us are turning to our inboxes for the most curated content from our favorite journalists. Before I recorded this, I double-checked, and I realized I subscribed to 16 different Substacks. I need that info. But one duo stands above them all. I can barely understand it, but I've become obsessed with it. It's Blackbird Spy Plane, a newsletter about fashion, gear, and getting that unbeatable recon. Oh, I got it. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Jonah Weiner, journalist, magazine feature writer, and co-author of the viral newsletter Blackbird Spy Plane. Jonah and I discuss making fashion accessible, eBay's yard sale vibes, and writing about celebrities for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and more. Jonah, how the heck are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Good. Good. I hate asking people how they're doing in this certain day and age because I know that deep down inside, while everyone leads with like, yeah, I'm fine, in the back of their head, they're just like, yeah, but the world's kind of falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I think that it's probably as important as ever to go through like the small talk convention of asking people how they're doing because the answers are going to be kind of meaningful and I don't know, loaded, loaded in a way that um, go past pure small talk. Yeah, because, well, I feel like it's just like as trained adults, we have this sort of mindset of like you just like how you start an email by saying like, I hope you're doing well. Like, no, I'm not fucking doing well. Just get to your point. Write the email. Because <laughs> you you probably have to do that a ton. It was like you, how many people do you cold email often when you're when you're doing your your writing stuff? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose it's, uh, I don't know. There you're mostly dealing, like if it's a celebrity, you're dealing with publicists. And then you're like squarely in the lingua franca of, I hope you, I hope this email finds you well. <laughs> All kinds of, you know, th- those are, those are already like stilted enough conversations that, yeah, they've got their own, uh, their own weird artificial rules. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, we were talking to you a bunch about Blackbird Spy Plane, but also a little bit more. Cause I, I feel like if you're into clothes and you and you, you consider yourself a connoisseur, you're really in to the BBSP right now. Um, but you kind of came out of nowhere and I mean, I know the how long gone guy said the same thing, but like you emerged fully formed. Like, I don't know if you had a focus group. I don't know what sort of thing that you did, but you came out fully formed with your own on-brand vibe that is extremely unique and distinguished. I love hearing that. It feels like we're making it up and flailing, you know, every time we send out the newsletter. So I'm glad that it feels like that from the outside. No way. Does it, does it really feel like that in all honesty? Um, no, I mean, I, I guess that like there's a there's a certain confidence in like the insanity of the voice and kind of like a pretty simple like metric of does this feel fun? If it feels fun, then we're going to do it. We kind of like follow that um, barometer or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's not a kind of writing that I am accustomed to doing or like I haven't really been doing before this newsletter and sort of just like figuring out what people are responding to, you know, post to post. So I guess I, I'm being like a, a little, there's a slight bit of false modesty. Like I feel confident, like the newsletter feels fun and seems to be connecting to people, but there's definitely a high degree of just kind of like, what is this thing? And we're kind of answering that question post to post. That's yeah, that's true. I mean, and, and for you too, because to kind of jump back a little bit, I mean, you have pretty much always been a journalist, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if there's a like a th- the, the easiest way to describe the through line between the magazine writing that I do um, and Blackbird Spy Plane is that in magazines I'm writing about people. Typically, it's you know people in culture, whether it's actors or filmmakers or musicians, or sometimes it's you know a choreographer or a fine artist. Um, every now and then it's been a fashion designer, but it's essentially like the, the, the writing that I do is typically profiles of people who are, I I like to watch people who are good at making something. I like to watch them making that thing. That's the simplest way to put it. So if it's an actor, I'd really like to be on set watching them figure out, figure their way through a scene. Uh, or if it's a photographer who's out in a landscape, I want to watch them figure out how they're going to take that photo and have a lot of like process in the profiles that I write in terms of just kind of like, instead of just, Oh, this, you know, beautiful finished work that this person made just kind of sprung into the world as you, you know, use the phrase before fully formed, actually see the kind of like, what were the challenges and problems and questions that a person had to kind of like surmount and think their way through on the way to making this thing that they're very good at making. And so if there's a through line between the magazine writing that I do in the newsletter, it's that interest that I share with Aaron, my you know partner uh, in life and the newsletter in people who are good at making stuff. And with Blackbirds by Plane, it's specifically about sort of small makers but uh, but that's the through line. It's like people who kind of have ingenuity, bring ingenuity, be- ingenuity to bear on something cool that they're, you know, that they're talented at making. Um, that's kind of the, you know, the connective tissue, if that makes sense. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, but what kind of made you want to be, because when you were talking about like your, your other career in which writing for magazines and stuff, you are a capital J journalist. Like you're not like (laughs) other folks who like, Oh, I had a blog and my buddies read it. And then a couple other places read it. Like, you know, like when you've done profiles on people and you've spent time with them and like, you know, like real journalism, not, um, fan excitement, um, that is narrated. Yeah, I missed out on that. I missed out on that pleasure. So I'm just doing it in reverse. I, I, I started with the, with the capital J journalist career. And now I get to just do the blog. Well, how how did you become the journalist first? I know you 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 tend to go pretty nitty gritty in bio. Like I'm trying to like temper exactly how how deep into the beats of the career I get into. But you kind of like to get into it on this podcast. Oh, I mean, for me, it's like it's here's the thing. When whenever someone comes on the show they get Googled and someone looks up what they're doing right now. But for me, which I think is great, but for me, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. You don't need me to explain that. But like, you know, the question that I want to try to answer and the theme throughout this entire thing is you went from being a very, very like, again, like capital J journalist, but obviously you had to be in some form of environment that nurtured that, that helped you explore that and want to seek that out further. But then more importantly, most journalists, especially the the caliber that you are, and which is a high caliber, are very private. They don't show themselves. They don't really reveal themselves. They want their work to do it, right? And then you go full 180 in, I think, an incredible way that is... I mean, what you're on the cover of every single newsletter you send out and you're, you're, you're building your own sort of... I hate to use this word like personal brand. Like people know the BBSP stuff because they know you and your fits and they know what you're doing. And that is, I would say, not the average characteristic 
characteristic of a journalist. Like you and someone like John Caramonica, you know, are are like the kind of journalist that like I know they're writing, but I also know their face. And mm. I can't say the same for a lot of other journalists I read. Yeah, that's interesting. Um well, yeah, so you know, for more than a decade now, I've been uh, a freelancer with contracts at different places. Uh, most um, most prominently, Rolling Stone and the New York Times Magazine. And I don't have the Rolling Stone contract anymore, but I'm still on contract with New York Times Magazine. So yeah, doing kind of like big profiles where yeah, as you say, like I like to spend time with someone. Uh, you know, across the range of like creative pursuits that I mentioned before. And, and really like, instead of just having some quick, you know, okay, you, you've got an hour over breakfast and now you've got to write a piece and try and like, pretend like you have some insights into who this person is and how they do what they do from that hour. That puts a lot of pressure on that hour of conversation. And it puts a lot of pressure on that person to be insightful and whatever. Like I, I, I much prefer to, you know, write up top, after I email a publicist and and hope that the email finds them well, uh, set up <laughs> set up a lot of access where I'm really just going to be in orbit, actually watching the person you know move through the world, go from meeting X to meeting Y, or you know whatever it is, just actually watch them do the thing because then I have to like th- then I can kind of bullshit less. It's less about me sort of doing, you know, like yeah, just BS essentially. Like I can just kind of report what I saw them do, and I feel like that's just. For my taste, those are the profiles that I always like the most because I don't feel like a writer is kind of like flexing their own voice um, as much as actually, you know, communicating something true about the lived experience of, if not actually what that person's like, you know, what it's like to be with them for X hours. Uh, so, but yeah, and I, I was, I think that some journalists actually are really comfortable and social media has been a big part of this, like, you know, as, you know, sort of since most journalists have gone on to Twitter. There has been that like cultivation of a voice that exists outside of just like the stuff that gets printed. And I've never been particularly comfortable with that. And it's funny that I think that um, there might be a version of this that actually I've spoken to like um, people who are like, actually famous about where you kind of inhabit a certain persona that's a version of yourself and that's how you can kind of be comfortable putting your face uh as out there as i do i think that my face is probably on every other post because typically there's going to be like a post where it's an interview and i keep my face off those but yeah like in terms of putting my face um also it's just look this we can just end the conversation right now because this really solves it under quarantine (laughs) until a week ago i wasn't able to get a haircut and so it forced me because I'm out in California and, you know, barbershops are all closed. It forced me to embrace what, let's be honest, turned out to be magnificent curls. And I was like, <laughs> holy shit, there's a personal brand that I can just build out of this hairdo alone. <laughs> no, I don't know. But yeah, like it, it, the thing with, with Biper's Biplane is obviously it's like it's this insane voice that like bears a hyperbolic relationship to myself, but it's not one to one me. And I think that like inhabiting that kind of like loony persona um, is a way to like get over discomfort in terms of like putting my face out there or, cause you're right. Like in terms of a journalist, there's a lot of pieces where like, there's a little first person in terms of like, you know, uh, I'll say so, like I got into the car with so-and-so that I'm writing about, but there's not like a whole passage about later that night in my hotel, I thought about when I was a kid and you know, what, uh, you know, what Travis Scott had said to me earlier in the day really resonated with an experience I had. There's certain journalists that like 
bring themselves into their, you know, into their stories in a way that I never was interested in doing. So yeah, but it has to do with like, it's funny. It's a version of me and Blackbird's Pie Plan. It definitely like connects to me, but obviously it's like, you can hear me talking now. It's not the voice of the newsletter. There's like a very specific deranged unhinged voice that that newsletter <laughs> traffics in. Yeah. I mean, I usually end up texting Lawrence after I read it. It's like, wait, what did that word mean? That's like, <laughs> which is fine. Like I am learning to embrace the fact that I'm getting older. There's stuff that I'm kind of disconnected from. I moved to the suburbs. Like I don't have my New York cool card anymore, but I'm kind of happier than I've ever been. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know. Is the news like, there's definitely like young people words that I do not know and that don't make their way into the newsletter for sure. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned Lawrence because like, actually like there was at, at the start of Blackbird spy plan, I think like I got interviewed on throwing fits pretty soon into the run of, um, Blackbird spy plan. And at that point I hadn't put my photo, uh, or even my name wasn't, hadn't been attached to it. It was this. Yeah, you like, even asked them to not take, pics of your face and stuff like that like you were you mentioned that in the in the throwing fits interview of just like how you you wanted to distance yourself i don't remember exactly what it was but i mean essentially they were kind of like well you know we put your photo like we put the people you know people's photo on the um when we promo it i think what it was that i have like a private instagram account under my actual name which is just like actual friends of mine who i torture with literally it's one of those like cat photo instagrams it's my cat like and hikes that i take uh, and I was like, there's no, like you're like throwing fits, like the, the throw gang has zero interest in this. So put the at of Blackbird's pipeline. But no, I mean, I was actually going to make an opposite point, which was that once I was being interviewed about it as Jonah Weiner, I was like, well, shit, I guess I have to actually kind of like be on the record as the same guy who does this newsletter. Cause that wasn't actually my instinct at the start of it. It was going to be this kind of like weird, you know, one of those like mid two thousands anonymous blog, like insane voices. Like I'm thinking of like big ghost face or like you mean competitor. I don't know if these things, if these references mean anything to you, like semi obscure, like mid two thousands, like blogspot.com, like super voice driven pseudonymous things. That was almost not consciously, but that, that was in my head, I think as the general, you know, vibe that this was going to have and then got interviewed and I was like, well, shit, can't do that. It's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, and this is like kind of, you know, unrelated, but similar to the fact that like, do you now notice that at least for me, because of the amount of media that I have that's being thrown at me that I also consume, I don't think I've ever read more than I ever have in my life. Um, I, I'm craving more than ever, uh, physical people to, Mm. to be attached to the content I'm reading. Like I want an empathetic relationship with the person who's talking to me more than I ever have in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that actually, I mean, that's a really good point. And that's one that's like probably um, going to be more interesting than some others or like more kind of broadly applicable to kind of like how people, uh, you know, relate to, you know, shit that they read uh, online these days. You're exactly right that like for the longest time, like, you know, opinion writers, obviously like the op-ed page in the New York Times, the people, you know, columnists, photos are attached to the printed word and, you know, or like someone like Matt Taibbi at Rolling Stone, like becomes well-known because his voice is so intertwined with his writing. And absolutely, mm-hmm. you're going to like foster that kind of, um, there's a certain intensity of, you know, h- however strange or one-sided it is, intensity of relationship between readers 
and um, and writers that really only happens when there's a face attached and some just sort of sense of the actual person as opposed to like some like you know, someone who's trying to be more sort of like an omniscient objective eye. Those are obviously impossible things to be anyway, but at least like doing that style. And yeah, you're right. When you talk about like how much my photo <laughs> has wound up now, I do these like insane photoshops and I think that helps make it like fun for me too. Cause I'm not particularly interested in photos of myself, but like I'll insert them into like weird 3d backgrounds because another thing that I've always loved doing in addition to caring about clothes and I have is just doing very bad primitive photoshops so that's another thing that this newsletter has unlocked but i was just going to say that like you do see that in terms of trying to build something like blackbird spy plane which is like independent newsletter um built from scratch just like post to post you're absolutely right like people like just giving people that toehold of just who you are and like a sense of because obviously it's not like autobiographical one-to-one it's not my it's not a diary but just like a sense of who is this person what are they into what's their voice what do they look like it does seem like that i guess i was bringing up op-ed contributors to say this isn't new but i think like the degree to which it's true now is way truer than ever before and part of it's like cutting through the noise that you're describing or like just reading more than you ever have and so that toehold becomes that much more important but i think that now in terms of you know at this moment trying to build an audience for something it does seem pretty necessary to like yeah uh have your face and, and and what your face stands for just like that relationship between you and an audience does seem, um, you know, that much more necessary. Yeah. And I, I also think in, in terms of the, the content, you know, gen- like when you talk about op-eds generally that op-ed, they would kind of lead with their, with like the, the new stuff, they would lead with the things that, that feel the most important. And then they kind of slowly reveal more about themselves throughout as you get to know them. Right. Like, um, and now I feel like I kind of want to know more about whomever I'm engaging or reading from, from the beginning. And that way, when they do lead with an opinion that I think is really, you know, earth shattering or different than my own, let's just be honest. Like, you know, I am much more willing to compromise or maybe step back from the hill that I'm trying to die on because I now have a deeper connection with the person that I've been sort of talking to. I just air quoted, um, through their content to where it's like, my mind has been changed so much in the best ways about clothes and music. I mean, geez, music forever. Right. Um, because I've developed such deep relationships on my own through the people that I've been learning from like the music critics, the, the, the pop culture critics, the, um, even the, you know, like in your case, I've, I went back and reread tons of your writing and I'm like, okay, I wonder how he looked in that situation. I wonder how, Hmm. you know, like, did he, did he feel the need to say Travis Scott, right? Did you want to change your clothes to look, to look, to, to show that you are like cool and you get it when you sit down and have this conversation with these people. Like, and so much for me now, I like, I want to have that connection with the things that don't really matter that we kind of agree on where it's like, cool, you like Nikes. Great. You know, okay. There's our common ground. And now I'm getting deeper with you when you start talking to me about, I don't know, I'm not trying to get political, but like universal healthcare where I'm like, Oh yeah, like that is really interesting. And because I know that you like Nikes and all this other stuff, 
like I'm into it. You right, know what I mean? Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you talk about like, I, I think that like, I couldn't like give you the, um, I, I couldn't like tell you exactly like down to like individual garment choices, but there is a sense. It's probably like the same way that like, if you're going to hang out with your buddies, you're going to dress differently than going for a job interview would be like the most extreme banal version of it. But it's true. Like going to interview Travis Scott, I am definitely going to wear a different shirt than I might wear to go interview. I don't know, I'm trying to think of someone at the other end of the spectrum. I don't know. Jan Wenner. Seinfeld. Seinfeld sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the outfit is definitely spicier when I'm going to hang out with Ray Schremmert in Calabasas. Uh, then, you know, when I'm going to hang out with some other people. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But, but in terms of like incorporating that into a piece, like I definitely like if it, you know if it's a, if it's a you know if it's a Rolling Stone story or a or a Times Magazine story, I'm getting out of the way. I'm not writing about what I wore to go hang out with um you know Steve McQueen when he was promoting Twelve Years a Slave. <laughs> There's more interesting stuff to talk about. One of the things I love the most about you and Blackbird Spy Plane and everything else is I feel like you are one of the few people that walks both lines. Um, and I don't know if it's going to, you know, maybe as Blackbird Spy Plane gets their, you know, 10 millionth subscriber that people, you know, will be nerding out on you when you're trying to do a profile on, I don't know, Travis Tritt. I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> we're, we're like, you know, Double T is a huge fan of the BBSP. I mean, and that's, that's kind of the thing that I get the most excited about, especially in our sort of like current day and age where, um, you invented a, an entire category of, of content. And that's, you know, it was stuff that was, that was there, like that people talked about on message boards and, you know, like an example, like nerding out on like cool Japanese outdoor wear or stuff like that. But, you know, making that more of like a mainstream thing and making it accessible. Um, cause that's the biggest thing is, and this is the, the biggest difference between you and the other people who love the stuff that you love is generally people don't want to tell people about the Visvum that they have. They want to tell them that it's Visvum, but they don't really want to tell anyone where they can get it. And it feels like the whole point of BBSP is you are trying to tell people how to get the things that you have spent, I don't know, 20, 30 years trying to get. That's really funny. That, it's interesting to hear you say all this because it's true. Like, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I was just kind of like figuring it out post to post. And there's not like, this is kind of the way I am generally. Like, I'm not a pretty, I'm not like a systematic thinker. I kind of just sort of like work in intuitive ways. And it's truly just been like just a newsletter driven by enthusiasm. And obviously like there's guardrails on that enthusiasm, but they're kind of like, they're hard for me to articulate, but that's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. Because I suppose that for me, it's shit that I've, maybe it's, it's like shit that I've spent a long time caring about intensely and like nerding out about intensely, but like in private. And so maybe that sense of the newsletter, like feeling as though it's sprung into the world for fully formed is because like, it's not like I just got into clothes you know, a month before I started publishing is something that like I've cared about. And probably on some level, it's been there the same way that like I'm interested in Visvim burying jackets uh, in the mud of Oshima Island uh, in an ancient kimono mud dyeing practice in order to like give their natural pink dyed iris liner, like a, a, just a special je ne sais quoi character that the Oshima mud provides. Like that story, like the same thing of like that, Look, to some degree, that's marketing um, in terms of like, you know, how much of that uh, story is like imminent and present in the 
$1,800 jacket that it's, that it results in. But anyway, like my interest in stories like that have been, you know, like there for a long time, the same way that I'm interested in telling any other kinds of stories and, you know, like in my uh, magazine profiles. And so it's just kind of like been something that I've cared about for a while. So maybe in a way, like this is probably just like a newsletter that I've been writing in my head, like, like this insane voice has probably just been like an internal monologue. And finally I just like actually hit publish on it. So maybe, maybe something like that, but yeah, like being guided by that enthusiasm and like being into all this stuff, but like, it doesn't feel, um, I, I, like I was actually really interested to talk to you and like to get your take on the newsletter because you have a, you know, much more kind of like quote unquote, um, an interest in quote unquote traditional menswear, um, than I have tended to, uh, and, you, I mean, I don't like, you've got your pace for how you want this conversation to go, but in your email to me about doing this, you said something interesting that was kind of like bad clothes are great and great clothes are bad. Um, and there seemed to be like some kind of like value inversion that was happening with Black, Blackbird's biplane. It's not really true with Visvim where obviously it's like the price point and like the craftsmanship of it is like yeah. very high level. Uh, and that said, I, I, we all are like pretty consistently, like when we're doing like t-shirts, like, so a couple newsletters ago, we did just a big deep dive on like nineties era, like museum retrospective merch. So like, you know, Miro sweatshirts from, you know, uh, Spain in the nineties and, you know, Picasso, like the sorts of like big artists who would get, you know, retrospectives and t get t-shirts made there. It's about like a vibe. It's not like those t-shirts are particularly well-made, but oftentimes we are actually interested in finding like small makers who, you know, uh, yeah, just do things really well. But anyway, that said, uh, yeah, I was curious to hear about like you were positing this like kind of like interesting, like value flip. Uh, as you saw it, that was happening with Blackbird Spy Plane. Whereas for me, it's just kind of like the shit that I've been into. Uh, and so I just kind of like, yeah, proceed off that enthusiasm and don't think about it as like, oh, I'm going to like demystify obscure Japanese clothes. It's kind of just like, this is the shit that has like, you know, interested me for a while. And so I'm just like turning on the fire hose of enthusiasm and writing about it. So I don't quite, I think in part, actually, it's like not, maybe that's like a big thing. It's like not coming from a fashion writing background or fashion media background, kind of caring about the shit as an amateur in the sense of when I would travel, uh, when that was still possible, wanted to go into like find interesting shops, see what they're carrying. Like that was kind of how I related to fashion. Um, Aaron, you know, is the type who actually like, she was a fashion forecaster for a while. She, um, she has a lot more, you know, like kind of teenager, like reading Vogue. Um, she has maybe like a more, I don't know, she's more steeped in, a, in, in some of the more rarefied ends of it than I am. But, uh, yeah, anyway, that was just a long way of going to, to say, like, to put your question back to you that you kind of put in the email about like, I don't know, th this, this newsletter, like, flipping a certain approach to men's clothes on and actually clothes generally because we have a lot of women readers as well but like flipping a, a relationship to clothes on its head well and so here's the thing so i'm gonna dice uh pull out two things from from what you were saying first and the fact that um you're not you know you just said you're not like a traditional fashion writer which i think is great i think the worst part about being labeled as a fashion writer is the stigmas that are attached with it because when people think about fashion right capital f fashion they think about elitism they think about an enclosed world they think about a place designed around money and uh barriers of entry that are often extremely limiting and not welcoming to other people it's really only been in the past 10 years has there been a new sort of 
wokeness of people trying to be like, no, wait, fashion needs to be more accessible Mm -hmm. and all levels of fashion need to be more accessible, not just, you know, air quote, like accessible fashion, which was basically H&M and Uniqlo. And that like, you know, people that would buy Chanel would wear Uniqlo and people that would, you know, buy Target mud jeans would wear Uniqlo, right? Like you had that sort of like Venn diagram overlap between those, Mm. but still being labeled as a fashion person, the average person throughout the United States and probably elsewhere, you, you have that stigma of just like, oh, so you think you're better than me? Oh, so you have expensive clothes? Oh, so you make this much money? Oh, so you do that? And that sucks. And that's one of the worst parts about talking about something that we love, which is clothes or, and you know, which kind of overlaps with fashion because, you know, perfect example. So I live in St. Louis now and Um, when my parents or brothers or anyone would tell people that I'm into fashion, they would go to, let's just be honest, like devil wears Prada, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They would be like, oh, so you think you're rich and you wear this and you do that, you know? And the thing that's happening now more than ever is you have this sort of, um, a guy named John Reuter, who's a guy that uh, I work with, and I'll, I'll let him because I know he'll he'll want to take credit for this quote, is he was just like, all the companies that were making sort of like, uh, you know, contemporary men's sportswear are getting much more casual. And all the people that started out with very, very casual stuff are getting much more like contemporary sportswear, right? Mm-hmm. So the perfect example would be like ALD, mm-hmm. um, you know, Amelie Andor making kind of suiting stuff and teaming up with drakes and then you have a company like drakes that are basically making over shirts and not really showing maybe what one two suits in the lookbook and so there's this big sort of democratization of fashion and the stuff that's happening but to circle all the way back to say you're a fashion writer right that's such a highbrow critique thing and so with you at bbsp writing about and talking about clothes that are like outdoor goods um, that are generally designed to be the most accessible type of clothing you can get because it's what you need to survive outside is really, really refreshing. And that's been the thing now when even some of my like old school wannabe cool kid fashion stuff, when I talk to them about Arcteryx or Carhartt or any of that other stuff, right. um, they're kind of a little bit closed off by that. Well, like, well, well, who made it? Is it, you know, does it have a rich family history? Does it have some sort of, and it's like, what is that fucking bullshit anyway? Like, do you really want to be like Coco Chanel? Like, are you (laughs) sure? (laughs) Like, is, are you sure? Like, think about all these things now. Um, and you know, and what's happening now and what you're doing at like BBSP and stuff, uh, is, basically like all the clothes that people are really into now and people are wanting to get are used to be super obscure stuff um, that like you could only get in Japan, you know, or um, where it was like, I don't know, any sort of like June Takahashi stuff or Takahiro Miyashita, like the soloist or number nine right. or yeah, like Montbell or like American things that have kind of been exclusively licensed certain parts of their brand to Japan. And you're kind of like championing that where I think one of the things that you, you had shared is like, Hey, Arcteryx made this hiking boot and I, they only made it for a short amount of time and I bought it and it's really great and you can too. And here's where it is. And so the whole biggest picture of that 30,000 foot view, which excuse my rambling is that is like, this is what I like and you can like it too. And Mm. when you think about 
fashion and like i'm not pulling shots at gq or even esquire like i used to write there generally your themes had to be much more narrow because it was controlled by advertisers mm. and it was also and i know that they get their own editorial things in. i'm not you know i'm not calling out noah johnson or anyone like that at all um but like generally it's it's because these advertisers are paying for it so you're like yeah well do you really think all the gq people are that into a hugo boss suit like no they're not they're just not, they're not wearing it. They're not. <laughs> and so, and I think like, that's the thing that I love the most about what you're doing is you, you make this more accessible than ever leading with your own personality. What does the new work from home wardrobe look like? Are you seriously still wearing sweatpants? Some of us are going back into our offices and some of us are staying put, but all of us are looking for something better for our wardrobe. P. Johnson is a custom men's clothier with a focus on soft tailoring, comfort, and a natural laid back elegance. With their own private factory in Italy and lush showroom in New York, Sydney, Melbourne, or London, you can easily stop in and see for yourself. Or check out one of their trunk shows. They even do virtual appointments now over Skype or FaceTime. Patrick and the crew just released their new winter ready-to-wear collection, and it's their best yet. Like the technical field jacket or their vegan suede overshirt, or my personal favorite, the classic drawstring trouser. It's a put-together look but not contrived. Simple, elegant, flattering, and if you want something special made just for you, you can make something new and you're not going to wait nine months. We're only talking a few weeks. So visit pjt.com to view it all and learn more. By the way, I have no idea how they got that domain name either, but their clothes are way better than that. P. Johnson builds individually crafted top-to-bottom wardrobes for men and women, so you can even nab some stuff for him or her. I've bought tons of MTM and MTO tailoring over the years, but P. Johnson ticks every box for me. From the price, the style, and the fit, everything they ever make is an extension from the last. So you don't need to worry about what season it is. It's always about improving your wardrobe with their quality pieces. Visit pjt.com to learn more, or just go to their Instagram. You'll see the new eyewear, overshirts, and in my opinion, the best styling you'll see on any runway or catwalk. It's a vibe. It's P. Johnson. Well, that's, I mean, uh, without speaking like to particulars, I mean, like the Hugo, Bo- the Hugo Boss suit, like my version of that would just be like, in terms of culture coverage, there's been, you know, like if you're working for, you know, like, you know, big circulation magazines, one thing that you'll hear, if you're interested in shit that's, you know, sort of more under the radar, I think that you'll hear a lot from editors when you pitch. It's just like, eh, it's too small. It's not like, you know, it's not quite there yet. It's too small. It's too small. And, and what winds up happening there? I mean, like, in a certain sense, that's where like a mag, something about like culture now and music specifically, like that's where a magazine like the fader really thrives because things that are quote unquote too small, you know, like the fader just has this like, or at least has historically had like this endless supply of like plugged in great, you know, like 20 year olds with great taste who like show up and will just like, write the first 300 word piece about someone who in two years is going to be a superstar. Um, or yeah. who will never be a superstar, but is just like idiosyncratic and, you know, off the beaten path. Um, anyway, from my perspective, like writing for Rolling Stone in the New York times, you'd hear, eh, it's a little too small. Maybe when we do this special package issue, we can kind of like fit that in. So there's just one sense of just like a lot of stuff just being kind of like left on the table that, you know, people would be interested in. And it's true. Like the, there's no advertisers at Blackboard Spy Plan. It's subscriber supported. So there is this sense of just kind of like honestly the question becomes and eh, that's too big um like we we just won't cover something if it's too big and the definition of too big is like relatively speaking it's like a pretty low bar it's like for instance we did an like 
interviews are where we like to talk to people who are kind of like fairly well known. And the criteria on our end for like who we want to talk to is kind of hard to pin down. Essentially, it's like people who we think are cool or whose tastes we think are going to like Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> like Jerry Seinfeld. Well, Jerry's an interesting case. We can talk about him in a second, but like, but even before we think about him, like Emily Bodie, who like whose clothes Aaron put me onto a couple of years ago. And, you know, like those struck me as like so beautiful, so cool, so interesting. Um, we wouldn't do a piece about like, hey, Bodhi has a new drop because like people know about Bodhi at this point. An interview with her, we were totally stoked to get. Um, and in part because the interviews that we do, we always orient them around um, someone who's, you know, got good taste telling us about a thing they love that's kind of rare. So whether it's Emily Bodhi or, yeah, the other day, Jerry Seinfeld, um, we're saying like, you probably are the kind of person just like go intuiting off your clothes, you know, off the things that you make, whether it's the stand-up specials that you make or like, you know, the um, hand-drawn corduroy jackets that you make if you're Emily Bodie. Like you're the kind of person who's going to have just like possession after possession that is like interesting, rare. You Either there's an interesting story in how it was made or how you found it. Tell us about that. Um, but yeah, in terms of like what we would cover outside of an interview context, like Bodhi would be just like way too big. Um, you know, and, and that said, obviously, like if you're talking to your devil wears Prada type, you know, interlocutor, they have no idea who Bodhi is, but yeah. So I guess all to say like, yeah, with Blackbird's biplane, like too big is kind of the problem, not, not too small. And, and it winds up allowing for, yeah, all going down like little wormholes. But that said, there's also the, a bit too small, like, I guess, isn't the, isn't the problem, but like to Jonah might be like, there are certain things that'll be like, eh, that's like to Jonah. And I don't know. Like, no, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. No, I mean, cause you're, you are back blackbirds by plane, you and Aaron, you and Aaron are blackbirds by plane. So like, if anything now, I mean, you don't need my advice, but like lead with you. Because at the end of the day, people want to pay you. I don't really care about Blackbird's biplane as much as I care about Jonah Weiner. In this case, they just happen to be interrelated and one and the same. Yeah. And I guess that like on in terms of just kind of like the little internal barometer for oh, does this work for a post? I, I think you're right. It's just a sense of like, do, does this, yeah, does this kind of thrill us? Do we get a little buzz off this? It's funny yeah. too, like there is this spectrum though, like to go back to what you said about those arteric boots, where like basically the two things that we like doing the most broadly speaking, like this isn't true, but like as a kind of just like um, compressed way of talking about like the spectrum of Blackbird's pipeline interests. It's either like things you can find on eBay for $30 or less or things <laughs> you need to go through like a Japanese proxy and they're going to call it. It's like, it's a yak wool fleece uh, dyed with fermented persimmon juice and it's going to be a thousand dollars. And, you know, you, you might have to pay some import duties when it arrives three weeks after you ordered it from a site that you had to Google translate from Japanese. Like it's kind of like eBay and like, and, and Japanese proxies. Like we, yeah. we link to both of those a lot and that's an interesting spectrum, but like, it makes sense to me. Like eBay is the best site. Craigslist is probably a little bit better. Like I feel like the internet peaked with Craigslist. Um, but there's something beautiful about like that kind of yard sale vibe coexisting with, yeah, like this shit is not carried by any stockists here. Your best bet is like get a plane ticket to Osaka and like go to the <laughs> <one> store. <laughs> on on that note, it's super crazy. Something that happened that's like very, very heavy here um, is um, uh, Facebook Marketplace, right? In the Midwest, everyone is on 
Facebook Marketplace. Oh shit! And I I kind of had to like reactivate and set up my Facebook account again because it's like you're getting you know vintage solid maple hardwood kitchen tables for a hundred bucks, oh, and wow. we're talking like old Eames stuff. I mean, like the treasure trove of extremely undervalued and underrated like hard goods and furniture is all over the Midwest and they're all selling it on Facebook marketplace, which is just bizarre. So Facebook is coming for Craigslist and uh, eBay and they're actually, they're actually bringing a fight to them. I, I don't know, I guess. I mean, the thing is, is like the gold standard is eBay, right? Because the most obscure stuff, I mean, and the, the highest of the high bar stuff is usually on eBay, you know, like in first dibs, right? So like that's all there in Craigslist. I mean, I think people are just worried about getting, based on whatever previous bad press Craigslist has gotten over the years and the fact that it's never really been moderated until recently has a bit of a stigma that people associate with of like, oh, I'm going to go and sell my my PlayStation and get stabbed or, you know, which is not the case at all, but it's just people aren't really doing that. But because we're all stuck to the world of Zuck, um, Facebook Marketplace in the Midwest, like it's just a natural thing. Right. right. Um, well, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it's, and I hate it. And my, I remember my mom was like, yeah, Oh, so. you got to use Facebook marketplace. And I'm like, that's trash. I'm not using that. And I go on there and I'm like, damn, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's like, like some, I mean, I like hearing you finding your, your hundred dollar, you know, like Saren in, uh, on Facebook marketplace, like pr- props for that discovery. But yeah, like as a general trend. Yeah. That's, that sounds kind of whack. I mean, at least for now, it appears that the good thing is that it, it it's not costing any, anyone money to list stuff or and their Facebook's not pocketing seller fees at the moment. They're not like full-blown Etsy or anything. That's how they get the market share, dog. I know. Oh, I know. I know. It's 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 trash. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um I, do you feel like you kind of have to like walk this sort of fine line when you like, do you like feel like you have to shift in between like, you know, Jonah, the the writer versus Jonah, the spy plane when you're, you know, when you're like writing, like, cause I think something I've wrestled with a ton, but I'm not a real writer or journalist is like, how do I separate like multiple writing voices and multiple, um, you know, cause even then, like as I was rereading some of your, some of your writing, um, and then going and then like contrasting that with Blackbird spy plane, I mean, it is, a, it's a different person. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because I, I, I like for the better part of this year, in addition to Blackbird Spy Plane, I've been working on this one feature that's finally going to come out. Um, it should be out at the end of November. It's a profile of David Fincher uh, pegged to his new movie, Mank, which comes out at the start of December. And so it's just started reporting it actually like six years ago. Uh, I Long story, but like it was supposed to happen six years ago. So I spent some time with him then. Um, kind of like went on ice and then got, you know, got, uh, got back in motion around Mank. But anyway, all to say, like when it came time to actually write this thing that I've been sort of doing interviews for with collaborators of his and spending time with him, when it came to, down to sit, like sit down, it came time to sit down and write that. I was like, yeah, fully like all the writing that I had done was the psychotic Blackbird spy plane voice where like, Every every other word is all caps. And um, by the way, I want to be clear: if people haven't read it, it's it's very pleasant. I'm making it sound like an unpleasant experience. It's just oh, don't worry, I'll take you. care of that. You're fine. It's it's like a warm. It's like just like a like a warm bath of all caps words, uh, curses that I for some reason put asterisks in, even though there's no censors. It's just funnier to me to like 
ble- do like the print version of bleeping out curses. Anyway, like that's all the writing that I've done. And when it came time to like actually write Fincher, which is a New York Times magazine story, I definitely it wasn't that hard, but like a shifting of gears that I had to do, which basically just involved like reading through like a bunch of New York times magazines and New Yorkers and just like getting that kind of like that magazine voice back in my head and then sitting down and yeah, it, it wasn't that hard, but it's true. Like, it's definitely a shifting of gears. Like in the, on the, on the, like the internal train track, you definitely have to like flip a switch. Do you talk about watches with Fincher? He's a pretty big watch guy. He's a big watch guy. He wasn't that interested in going into it, interestingly. Um, cause I yeah, like I I was trying to get into uh things about him besides his infatuation with movies. And basically he was saying like the only time that he's not thinking about movies is he's a big Madden guy. Like he always like his friends for his birthday will buy him the newest Madden, loves playing Madden. Um like like the football game. The football video game. Uh wow. And like stars are just like us. Exactly. But he like, I I think for like, just in terms of an interview subject, he wasn't particularly, he could talk about film all day long. And yeah, I caught when like someone had told me that he bought like a friend of his, like Fincher bought like some, the friend actually was not enough of a watch geek to tell me exactly what the ref was or anything, or even like what the model was, but some limited edition Rolex for like for his birthday but the friend didn't exactly know what it was. And when I tried to get Fincher to bite, he was like, yeah, it's just interesting. Like, so someone like Seinfeld can talk for an hour about why watches are fascinating. I'm sure Fincher can too, but he wasn't really interested in having that part of himself be in a feature. So unfortunately he was just kind of like, yeah, it's just fascinating to me at how they fit so much into such a small space. And that's the kind of like the craftsman, you know, like, yeah, the kind of craftsman answer just sort of like, I'm impressed by the crap, but we didn't, we didn't geek out, unfortunately. And I, I'd be uncapable of geeking out anyway. I don't know that much about watches, but the shifting train track, he just like was so uninterested in talking to the New York times about watches that that must be like, maybe it's just some, I don't know who knows what the reason is. It might just be that he might fear that it reads as a rich. Kind of like rich guy affectation in a way that, or who, or maybe it's just kind of like, I want to keep this private. No idea. That's really yeah. interesting. How do you like disarm your subjects when you're talking to them? Um, I guess the the easiest way, well, first off, like um, listeners at home do not know that we couldn't get my camera to work. So I can see you, but you can't see me. But you, but uh, I try and do as many, just like, you know, you just like really perform that you're listening to someone and you perform your agreement. A lot of eyebrows flying all over your face just to like really indicate that you are present to the, you know, conversation. That's just kind of how I am, period. That's how I am at parties is really to like, an impulse to put people at ease beyond that, I guess like do a lot of research and do a lot of thinking about and as empathetic thinking as possible about the person that you're interviewing and have that research and that kind of work that you've done beforehand inform the questions that you ask and inform the things that you say in response to the things they say, essentially just indicating that you have spent time thinking about them and that you're taking them seriously. That's pretty disarming. Just like the evidence that you are taking the person seriously and that you've thought a lot about how they do what they do. Do you have any examples you could share? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, Like, let me think what would come to mind. Um, Where you were like, man, this feels tense. And like, there was a moment where you felt like the, the discussion, the interview, the time wasn't going well. And you, you 
felt a way that you could connect with them deeper? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I'll, okay, I'll give you two examples. One, the, the second one will answer that specific question. The first one will be just like what came into my mind a second before you mention that um, scenario. Like, so did a piece about Bradley Cooper when he was in uh, Limitless. So it was kind of this question of, is Brad Cooper, he's the guy from The Hangover, is he going to be become a leading man, right? That was kind of, mm-hmm. that, that was sort of like the, the moment that I'm dropping in on him for, uh, this is for Arts and Leisure for the New York Times, like the paper, not the magazine. And he's a guy who had done a lot of theater and had kind of like a relationship to acting as he saw it that hadn't really been um it, it might have like informed how he acted like how he you know did his work in the hangover but it certainly wasn't how people were thinking about him um and there just like that was actually more to the point where he was very eager to uh kind of talk about what would it be like i think he had just maybe he just signed on to do silver linings playbook I might have the chronology wrong, but I think he maybe signed on to do that. And he was talking about like uh, David O. Russell's like shot compositions in one scene of the fighter. And he was like, it's so incredible the way that he gets all the sisters on this one couch. And he was essentially doing kind of like formal analysis in a way that um, I guess I, he, you know, it was important for him to be like, you know, maybe I'm like, I'm in the tabloids photographed with like models all the time, but like I can, I can get, I can get cinephiliac, you know, with the best of them and talk about like, you know, shot, shot design. But I had done enough kind of like research on him that my questions, like I was so stoked to get into that with him because like my thing with anyone and Bradley Cooper just came to mind is they're famous in most cases because they're actually good at doing the thing they do. Not merely because just some mechanism of like fame generation, like, you know, chewed them up and spit them out. And so there I'm kind of like interested to talk to him like, okay, when you're in the hangover and you're playing that character versus when you're playing this kind of schlubby dude at the start of Limitless or when you're playing like whoever the fuck you played in G.I. Joe, which I didn't see, but I think he was in some G.I. Joe big budget reboot that probably was a bomb. And that's why I know was remember it. Uh, but like, how are you standing differently? Just like when you it, like, how are you holding your body? Because that's an actorly choice that maybe Bradley Cooper hasn't you know maybe like robert de niro got asked that a lot in the 70s because there was a certain kind of like you know stella adler lee strasberg school that he came out of whereas bradley cooper is not getting asked like how are you holding your body to just like play this character versus this character and he like you know like was just into being asked questions like that and i also just Mm. peter's perspective if you're not quite sure what's interesting about Bradley Cooper or you are interested in him, but you couldn't quite formulate why just hearing him say like, Oh yeah, well actually like hunch my shoulders a little bit. Or I like, I, I actually walked with, I, I trained myself to walk with a bit of a club foot for this guy. And those are the kinds of like, you know, things that actors do all the time. Actors are so aware of what their body language is doing at all times. Like they're so in control of how they're signifying just in terms of what their shoulders are doing. Um, even if it's on a molecular level and it's not conscious on their parts. So that's like one story there. It's just kind of like being prepared to like chop it up with Bradley Cooper about shot design and like real nuts and bolts actorly choices. That's going to disarm him. That's going to like produce, you know, from my perspective as a reader, it's like a more interesting piece. Cause you're going to say, Oh shit. Like Bradley Cooper thinks about interesting shit when he's playing <laughs> homeboy from the hangover. Wow. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and then the other thing was like, I remember like the first time I interviewed, maybe it was the only time I don't know if I ever got back with him. I did a Kendrick Lamar piece after good kid, mad city came out 
where oh, wow. I met up with him. This is for Rolling Stone and met up with him maybe at like the Grove in LA. And the whole deal was like, he was with a couple buddies and like they were eating lunch and that's where I was told to meet him. So I show up there and he doesn't make eye contact with me or, you know, he like make eye, makes eye contact, says what's up, but then kind of like is looking at his phone or like engaging with his buddies. And I'm just kind of this dude at the table. Like uh, it would be awkward in any circumstance just showing up to meet someone, but like they're in the middle of a lunch. So you just like imagine stumbling in on like three people you haven't met oh, before. And you're so they them. have food and you don't have food. Yeah. Like, as I recall, like they're like wrapping okay. up lunch or like they've got like some food on, you know, mostly empty plates and I'm showing up at that point. But I'll say like Kendrick is not doing the Jonah Weiner thing of being at a party and making me really feel welcome. He's <laughs> kind of like, and so he's making jokes and like his buddies are making jokes with each other. Like they don't include me. And there's a certain impulse there that I had to fight against where like, I want to be like, Oh, I could like riff off that riff you guys are doing. Like I can hop in on this. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to like go off his body language. He's being like a little bit, let's just interpret what he's doing as being circumspect about this new guy who showed up. He hasn't done a lot of interviews at this point. Maybe he's a little wary about me. And so I just kind of shut the fuck up, like laughed at the jokes, like a little bit, didn't overperform the laughter. Uh, just kind of like tried to be as unobtrusive as possible. And that was a really interesting one. Cause I had to fight my typical impulse to be like, hold up. This feels awkward. Let me make a fucking like loud spectacle of myself to try and break the ice and like get through this. I kind of got the sense that he wasn't going to respond to that. And that's, I mean, what we know about Kendrick now, like that is so his style, this dude, he's a real lay back in the cut kind of guy. But then as the day developed, he was like, Hey, you want to get in my car? Like, let's go look at my old neighborhood. And suddenly like I'm in his car and we're just the two of us driving around and I'm asking about his like weird, Hey, this might've made the piece actually a little early Blackbird spy plane fashion, like crossover, but he had some like $2,000 limited edition, like galaxy motifed foam posits, actual sneaker heads will know what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. but we like talked to, you know, you sort of get into it about sneakers, but yeah, there was a guy who like, it was really tense and the disarming thing there was actually just trying to like match his energy and instead of trying to like, Oh, if he's at a two, I'm going to be at an eight so we can be a 10 together. No, it was like, I'm going to be a two as well and just kind of let him heat up at his own, at his own pace. Uh, that was kind of tough. That was against my typical instinct. Where did you learn how to do that? Cause I think that's a really rare thing. The ability to, to read the room, but also it sounded like, you know, especially you, you had said that like you hadn't done a lot of interviews, uh, at that time to kind of like more or less put your pride aside and try to establish, I mean, this look, this is, goes back to Blackbird's by point again of, of this like empathetic connection. Who, who taught you that? Where did that come from? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's probably just like a life of interacting with people in a certain way, but with that one, that was, he hadn't done a lot of interviews I had. And so I think at that point I, excuse me. Yeah. I'd been in enough rooms, um, where, uh, I had kind of like entered as like an interloper with some suspicion around me and to just be like, you know what, I'm just going to try. This doesn't feel right. This feels awkward. It feels weird, but I'm just going to like sit with it. That was just like, I, I remember that being, it's funny. I haven't thought about it since, but that was like a conscious moment where I was just kind of like, let's just try this. So, I mean, in a sense, I was learning it on the fly. Um, like, you know, I, yeah, yeah. But it had been, enough. yeah. What, like, is there, has there ever been like a journalist or someone that you've really tried to aspire towards or analyze? Like for me, I have, um, and routinely go back to watching tons of Dick Cavett interviews. Oh yeah. He's amazing. He's so amazing. Um, yeah, not conscious like that. I guess there have been like magazine writers that I have 
um, gone through periods of being really uh, uh, obsessed with and trying to like get into the mechanics of how they do what they do. Um, the like the last person I, I actually haven't read her like most recent stuff, but Larissa McFarquhar, this writer at the New Yorker, who's done a lot of really good arts profiles, like great Quentin Tarantino profile from like Kill Bill or Kill Bill Two. Oh wow, she's on the set for that. Um, I mean, she writes about all kinds of stuff, but among other things, she does culture writing. And she, I just remember she did this piece about Hilary Mantel, the Wolf Hall author, uh, where I don't think she actually said her name the entire time. Maybe there's like one time where the words Hillary Mantel appear in like an 8,000 8, word piece. But for some reason, McFarquhar like set herself the task of, or like the challenge of, I'm not going to, I'm going to profile someone, write 8,000 words about them and say their name in the piece maybe twice in 8,000 words. And otherwise it was just she, 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 she. And that's just a strange experimental, like kind of like, I mean, it, it sounds like the silliest thing in the world, but for the New Yorker, like that's high experimental to just like, yeah, yeah. someone's just do she, but it like lent the piece, this weird incantatory, like almost like you're reading like an epic poem or like a, ba- a Bible passage or something. Anyway, people like that who kind of like fuck with the form, but in just really small considered ways those are interesting to me because basically all I write is profiles and it's a form that has its conventions and cliches as any form does. And I have a pretty good kind of muscle memory for what those are. So Mm. the downside to that, the upside is that you can kind of write a piece that's readable and that like, you know, will situate readers and make them kind of comfortable. The downside is you can go on autopilot and kind of like not really rise to the occasion of, you know, just being present to like, a, a deeper insight or it's like a more interesting way you could cast a scene. So like someone like that, who's just like setting herself a challenge of, you know, typically pieces go this way. I mean, it's something as simple as typically a profile will use the person's name. You can fact check me on this. I think that maybe like she says the name three times, but it's like notable that it's just she, 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 she. Anyway, so just things like that. Wow. That's some nerdy shit. That's some, that's some fucking Bradley Cooper shot, shot design type uh, type shit that I, uh, no, it's, it's great. I mean, I think that's, that kind of also, I mean, it comes back to me that this is why I like your writing and, and, and what you put out there. I mean, do you, do you have like a favorite non sequitur that you ever interject to kind of change the direction of a conversation? No. What, how do you, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I steal from other interviewers, but like asking someone if they pee in the shower. Oh, okay. Yeah. That kind of thing. Just like as, as something is like you're you're at a weird pause, you're at an awkward interjection. Like. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, I I that's a style of interviewing that I'm always fascinated by, and that I see like like Vanessa Gregoriadis, I think does um, she's a really you know prolific and smart profiler who does profiles of you know people at a lot of the same places I write, and I think that she has she or like there's this guy Eric Hedegaard at Rolling Stone. I think they have like mm-hmm. a series of questions that are like along those lines that they kind of ask everyone. Um, and I think that I come that's like a real that's a good profiler's instinct because then suddenly you get someone talking about peeing in the shower. Then like you, how else would you have gotten on that subject? Yeah, you know, it would have been pretty tough. Whereas you know, you just get like pops of personality and color to someone. I think that I come at interviews more from the perspective of someone like before I was writing, like at my college newspaper, I wrote like 
essays, like sort of like movie criticism, music criticism, like doing sort of criticism and reviews. And so I think I come to the interviews almost as kind of like first and foremost as a critic who's thought a lot about the work that the person has done and thought about a lot of questions about the actual work. And oftentimes I kind of envy um, people who are not envy, but I don't know. It's just not, it's not the way I approach things, but I'll like, I, I will see that the approach of like having a question in your arsenal, like, do you piss in the shower is going to produce a moment in a profile that sometimes my interactions with someone like that might come up independently, but it's not because I asked it. Uh, and yeah. yeah. So for me, it's, it's all about like, almost like formulating an essay about the person in my mind and trying to ask them questions about like, you know, issues that would come up in that imaginary essay. Uh, but it's always like, I'm always so just focused on work, on process, on how things actually get made as opposed to personality. I just kind of like that interests me more. And I think it's probably like maybe to the detriment sometimes of what people want out of a celebrity profile, which is like slightly more colorful stuff. I typically feel like if I get enough time with someone, then that shit will kind of materialize anyway. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like a, 18 minutes on like a glitchy FaceTime call. That's so high stress. Like you need to like, you need to like bust out your inspector gadget. Like, all right, time for the piss question. (laughs) Yeah. Like that, that, yeah, that's high degree of difficulty shit. Like, whereas I just like to just like get in orbit, spend two days with the person. They might mention pissing in the shower along the way, but like, then I just have all my questions about. Yeah. As you've been like getting bizarro people for, Blackbird's biplane. I mean, you had Nathan Fielder, Rashida God. Jones, Andre 3000. But like, as while I love all those people, even Seinfeld, Nathan Fielder was the most out of left field person I've ever seen. And also, I would say a true style god. Like, how did you get Fielder? Yeah. Uh, well, for, I mean, first off, I'm glad that he, like, he felt, even though he's like left field, he did feel so right because there is some style God shit to him. And and like the most, I mean, maybe that's just as simple as like in the, um, in the kind of like Instagram, like weird Instagram style account, like Cosmos, you would just sort of see photos of him in costumes or like whatever, just like wearing summit ice from Nathan for you, the like Holocaust awareness, outdoor gear <laughs> line just for listeners who are unfamiliar that he invented for a, um, and still produces for an episode of his comedy central show. Like, I guess you would see photos of him kind of get passed around in this new mode of like partially ironic, but also totally sincere celebration of absolutely like, you know, you wouldn't anyway, yeah, like a celebration of a style God in, uh, in the most kind of like unconventional way, like Nathan. Yeah. That just, um, also, there's like a culture element to Blackbird's Biplane too, where like Nathan, I called him up and talked about, uh, like wind up talking about like a magic trick because he used to be a magician before he was a comedian. And he um, called his parents back in Vancouver and had them go through like old boxes of his stuff and just like take photos of the contents and send them to him. People can read this. There's like some photos of the boxes in black in the in the interview but uh he like zeroed in on this one magic trick that had a funny funny story behind it it's not a fashion interview it's not about like a garment or anything like that like i was able to talk about the dumb starbucks apron 
that I got my hands on from this fake coffee shop that he opened up for the for the sitcom, which was identical to a Starbucks, but it just said dumb in front of everything so that he could theoretically their copyright through parody law. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if like trying to explain this stuff for, for listeners like helps make it more or less clear. But anyway, like we didn't talk about garments. We talked about that, but um, that was as simple as there are, I've interviewed a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. There are certain ones, very few who I've stayed in touch with since then uh, in glancing ways. And Nathan's just one of them. Like I wrote about him for season two or three of Nathan for you for the times magazine. And we got along well enough that like I was living in New York at the time. Uh, and the next time he was in New York, uh, we got together and just said, what's up and hung out a little bit. So we would sort of, and we have other friends in common. So that's a guy that like, when I was starting Blackbird spy plane, I was like, I just love Nathan's stuff so much. He does feel right. Like not even knowing that the Jeremy Kirkland's of the world, uh, were big Nathan Fielder fans. It just felt like I could tell anyway that it was just like not going to feel discordant. It was going to feel left field in exactly the right way. So I sent him a note and thankfully he was into it, which is the exact same thing that happened with Seinfeld. Basically the same story. That's crazy. I mean, it's cool that you're able to, to develop that and maintain that relationship with folks over time. I mean, I, I that's a pretty rare thing. I mean, I know that maybe the, the super old school journalists are able to do that, but I mean, that's... I just feel like nowadays, like people are talking to so many people, it's hard to cultivate and maintain a relationship like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and look, there's also like, there's a certain uh, friendship or coziness that you don't want to have because it might indicate that you wrote a piece that like didn't do a service to your readers and was maybe more ass kissy or. Right. Know, yeah. um, so it doesn't happen that often. I think there's just like, in my case, because I'm asking for a lot of time with people and spending a lot of time with people and, you know, and over that time getting pretty deep into whether or not it's like issues like their childhood or things like that, biographical stuff, even if it's just talking about like with Bradley Cooper, like just talking, like no one else had asked him like questions about how he approaches acting and how he like gets into a character. Really? It's, I mean, at that point, you know, at that point, right. It's like, it's like, there's an intimacy that, um, might feel betrayed and might feel weird once the piece comes out, because you can never tell when a piece gets published, what, you know, you, I might think that I wrote the most flattering piece about um, Bradley Cooper ever written, but there's going to be one phrase that tripped his, you know, tripped his censors that um, that didn't trip mine. So it's kind of rare for a variety of reasons that uh, that like a relationship persists after the piece, but the materials are there for it in the sense that you've had a very intense like long first date with someone it's like the before movies with ethan hawk and julie delpy like you've like roamed a foreign city together because they were on tour there you flew to meet them there and suddenly you've like had this intense wow i never thought about it but it's a lot like those movies sometimes where you're like having these conversations that because of the convention of the profile i can ask all kinds of like quote-unquote invasive questions but that the person is happy to talk about so i guess the 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 materials for intimacy are there to either feel like it's a total betrayal when the piece comes out or be like, you know what? Like, I like that guy. Wow. Like I'll stay in touch. Yeah. That is a fine line to walk. So last thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump here. Are you going to have mayor on spy plane mayor? Well, you know, it, it does feel like so many um, stars are in the process of aligning for the God himself swinging through spy plane HQ. He, um, he loves Visvim. We both own the same yep. Kessuri Weave Indigo Camping Trailer Handyman 
shirt, only 65 of which exist on Earth. Number- Signed by Nakamura? <laughs> well, I don't know who does the pencil lettering on the tags. Is it Nakamura? Oh, okay. Maybe. Let's see. It's not. It's not. I mean, he'll, he'll sign like the big pieces, but yeah. Yeah. Those like, yeah, I don't have any of those like one of five, um, like, uh, you know, stencil dyed bathrobes that John has, but I do have a shirt that he does. And on his birthday, cause he follows Bipers by plan on, on, on Instagram. So I did a, uh, photo, one of my trademark psycho primitive photoshops, where he had done a video on Instagram wishing Tony Bennett happy birthday wearing this shirt. So I threw the shirt on. He was also wearing like turquoise Goros jewelry, which I don't any, own any of, but I do. Yeah. I was a big. He was wearing an eagle, which is insanely hard to get. Oh, disgustingly okay. hard to get. I see. Yeah. I don't know about Sorry, Goros at all. Ahead. I haven't gone down that rabbit hole. And I don't really, yeah. I'm not really a jewelry guy, but I do have a fake diplomats um, chain <laughs> from the mid 2000s excellent harlem hip-hop crew uh so i wore that anyway um he's a big nathan fielder fan uh he um is a big visvim fan it does feel like the stars are aligning we'll see we'll see all right well jonah this was a huge pleasure thanks so much for chatting it always feels like i've just been rambling totally uselessly so i hope it came through as cool on your end I'm so happy to get your email. It's such a fun podcast. I love the conversations that you get out of people. So it's, it's fun to actually drop into the, um, into the stew with you and, you know, get our leaves collected together in spirit. Thanks. Thanks. It means a lot. I, uh, I very much admire and am insanely jealous of how much heat you got. It's, it's good. <laughs> so. Thanks man. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. See ya. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by The Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and we're produced by Blamo Media. You can follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, which there are a ton now, a community slack where hundreds of us are just sitting and chatting about God knows what, special events, and more. So join the fam, sign up at patreon.com forward slash blamo. Have a lovely holiday, everyone. We'll see you soon.